Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. We're going to be beginning at verse 1, and we're going to be uh, going all the way through verse 10. And this morning's text is um, an interesting text. Uh, It's a text about repentance. Okay, it's a very important topic. This is a message you, you guys should be very thankful that you come to Orange County Christian Fellowship or to a Calvary Chapel. And the reason why is this is a topic that you will not hear in the majority of churches nowadays. Repentance. It's like, what? You know, that, that's, that's like, no, that, that's not friendly. That's not nice. So it, it doesn't get t- you know, talked about often um, in a lot of churches. Um, you know, if you're if you're going through and doing topicals now, there are I know some extraordinary topical teachers, and I, I really um, admire them because it's really hard doing topical studies. But as you're going through um, topics to teach on, you know, repentance isn't one of those fun ones where you go like, oh yeah, let's do you know a, a three week series on uh, repentance. Some do, uh, and, and I, I appreciate them when they do it, but you know, more times than not. You know, you're gonna you're gonna do things that are fun and comfortable and encouraging things that are going to um, make your people feel better and things like that and that has uh, come to pass in a lot of churches um, in our generation. Uh, it wasn't always the case, but it is today. But uh, today we are going to be we're going to be looking upon uh, the re- the repentance of Judas. Now, in mind, you have verse 27. I'm sorry, verse 1 and 2, where it's just kind of like a, it's just telling you something that happened. And then in verse 3, it begins this thing. And in in my verse 3, I have a little title above verse 3, and it says, Judas repents. Do you guys have something similar to that? Does it say that on any of yours? Well, mine actually says Judas repents on it. And so I thought, you know what, it's like, that's a great title for a message, Judas repents. But I'm going to doctor it just a little bit. I'm going to put Judas repents, question mark, and ask it as a question, Judas repents? You'll see in just a second. So let's go ahead and uh, we're, we're going to jump in at verse 1. But before we do this, I, I, I want to make something very clear. Because as we're coming to this place, the, this question of whether or not Judas Iscariot, the betrayer of Jesus, the one who betrayed him with the kiss of death that we see in the Godfather movies and all that, he's the inventor of it, right? When we see this man, Judas, and we see um, what's happening here, and we start questioning whether he really did, you know, repent of what he did before jesus because you know anybody here ever seen jesus christ superstar ever see that musical and they they actually portrayed judas in heaven right that oh you know he repented he was sorry and then at the end of the movie judas comes down out of heaven with his like with the lights and everything and and it's like yeah well we're going to talk about that tonight or this morning right we're going to talk about it but one of the things that we need to understand though just as the context of this is that whether or not Judas repented, whether, the, whether or not he had changed his mind, changed his heart, and changed his direction, the fact that God's love for him was steadfast does not change. Okay, this I know. Jesus called him friend as Judas was kissing him. Right? Not only that, but when he was at the, the Last Supper before he instituted communion, the new covenant, right? Before he did that, he washed Judas' feet. Judas was sitting at the place of honor at his right hand. Right? These are things that we know. And so the, the love of God towards Judas is steadfast. And yet uh, the question of Judas and his repentance uh, does definitely, it, it is in question. And even something that Jesus said you know, on uh, the night before at the Last Supper um, will even bring into question whether Judas uh, could repent. And we'll get into that in just a second. But um, I, I just want to kind of bring the context of this study 
as the love of God is vast. It is immense. And God's love, his faithfulness for Judas never wavered at all. Okay, I, I want to kind of just give that little disclaimer before we get into this, because again, you know, th- this is a hard topic. This is a hard topic, the, the repentance of Judas, right? Because we see it, it almost seems like repentance, but l- let's just break it down. Join with me in chapter 27, verse one. When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, it is not lawful to put them in the treasury. Because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was pierced, or priced, sorry, and they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for your word, Lord, for it is inspired by you. Lord, there is so much evidence, Lord, that that we can trust it. Lord, I thank you even in the way that I came to salvation, Lord, the way you drew me was to try to challenge your word, and I failed. And so, Lord, we do surrender ourselves to you and to your word. We, We are humble before it. And Lord, I just pray that you would help each one of us to take it in with a ready and open mind. And yet, at the same time, to search the scriptures daily to find out whether these things are so. So, Lord, we love you with all of our hearts, and we praise you now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we begin in in verse 27. It is the morning of Thursday. So you remember Wednesday night was the Passover, and then you come to Thursday morning. I know you guys have all heard of the Good Friday and all that. Isn't that the day that Jesus died on the cross? No. Right? That is a church tradition, and there are a lot of great commentators who still hold on to the Good Friday thing. And you know, a lot of times they'll say, "Well, you know, you know, I don't want to like sit there and like tout myself above anybody, or you know, they're probably smarter than me." But in this case, they are absolutely wrong. Okay, Jesus said emphatically that he was going to spend three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. Right in the heart of the earth, and so if if Jesus died on Friday, it is impossible. No matter how you work the math, even if you look at the Jewish calendar, you can't have Jesus in the tomb for three days and three nights. So it cannot be Friday. Okay, it's Thursday. Okay, so this is Thursday morning, and this is after the mock trial. This is after Annas' house. This is after uh, Caiaphas's place. Right, Th- this is after all of that. And when morning came, it says all of the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. Okay, I want to pause here for just one moment because, you know, we we need to make sure that we understand these people clearly. 
Because now you could say like, hey, you know what? If there was somebody out there and, and we really don't like their preaching and, and maybe it's like a Benny Hinn kind of say, and you could say, you know what? This guy, he is not even a Christian, right? And, and so it, it is important that we go on the attack and, and we like make sure people understand that this man is a false prophet, that he's just trying to take your money and things like that. You know, we can kind of go on and, and like that, but that's about as far as you would expect anybody uh, who named the name of Jesus Christ to do, right? You say, hey, you know, I can justify saying that Benny Hinn is a false prophet, okay? So you could say that, but that's not what these guys are doing. These guys, if they truly believe that Jesus was a false prophet, right, they, they could go up and they could, they could tell all the people, they could go from synagogue to synagogue and say, hey, this guy is not the Messiah. He, and they have done that, actually. They, they were even threatening people saying, hey, we're going to kick you out of uh, the synagogue if you... Uh, believe in this Jesus as the Messiah, right? They went that far. But see, that wasn't enough for them. The, uh, the, their, their hearts were a lot darker than that. And what they did, the equivalent of what they did is if I said, hey, you know what? I think Benny Hinn is a false prophet. Therefore, I'm going to go over to the mafia and hire them. And I'm going to put a hit on Benny Hinn to kill him. Okay. That's what these men did. Right, here is this man who stood against them doctrinally and morally, ethically, right? He, he stood against them. He withstood them and said, the things that you are doing are wicked. And so they hated him so much. And it wasn't just like, hey, you know what? This guy's a false teacher. Because there was a lot of false teachers in their day, and they didn't put them to death. But Jesus was a threat to their income. He was a threat to their status quo. And so what did they do? They plotted to kill him. These are murderers. Okay, these are murderers. And we need to understand that. We need to see that. Okay, these are murderers. It says, and when they had bound them, they led him away and they delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. And their sole purpose, their whole idea is to have him crucified. Now, um, the Jews actually, they kind of lost their ability to do capital punishment. Partly. They actually could do capital punishment. And there was one exception of the rule of when they were allowed, they had the authority to do it. And that is if somebody blasphemed God in the temple, if they somehow desecrated the temple, right, they could go in and they could stone somebody to death. Okay, they were allowed to do it. There was actually signs on the temple, right, that said, if you go in here, speaking of like Gentiles, Roman citizens, if a Roman citizen entered into the temple and went beyond the court of the Gentiles into the court of the men or the court of the women or any place, if they walk past these spots, the people in there in the temple mount would have the right by Caesar to pick up stones and murder them. They could actually take them over to the edge of the, of the, the wall and they could throw them off of the wall of the temple, which is really high, and to their plummeting death, and then go down there and throw rocks at them to make sure they were dead. They had that right. So now these guys who are plotting this, um, this whole thing of, against Jesus, they very easily could have just toted him right up to the Temple Mount and said, he blasphemed, and then start stoning him to death. It was well within their ability. Obviously, their mock trial and their, you know, the whole bit, they could have done that very easily. But here's the thing. Throwing him off of a cliff and then stoning him to death, that would be too quick for them. That's not their heart. They specifically wanted him to be crucified because they wanted him to suffer, right? That is these men's hearts. Is, you see how it is now being revealed here in the text, right? They, they, they didn't just stone him to death. They took him to Pontius Pilate that he might be crucified. That is their desire. But now we come, verse 3, and, and, and we change gears now. 
And now the, the camera on, on the stage moves over to Judas. And it says, then Judas, his betrayer, just in case you forgot, seeing that he had been condemned, seeing that Jesus had been condemned, was remorseful. Okay, now, that's an important thing to look at. It says that, that, that Judas was remorseful. And, and you can think, like, well, yeah, see, like the, my, like the title that I have on my paragraph here, Judas was remorseful, right? He repented. Isn't that what repentance is? Well, it's important to, to kind of stop and take a look and like, what exactly is repentance? What does it mean to be repentant? Do you guys, anybody here remember what repentance means? It's a 180 degree turn, but it's not just a physical turn. It's a change of thought, right? It's a change of mind, but it's more than just a change of mind. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of action, right? It's the whole, the old, you know, Macintosh, you know, slogan about think different. That's exactly it. But when you think different, if you really think different, it's going to change what you do. And so repentance is a change of mind leading to a change of action. Now, we definitely see Judas is remorseful here, right? We have no reason to doubt it. The Bible says it. He was remorseful. But does that mean he was repentant? Well, we're going to come to that. We're going to look at it. We, we must discern this morning whether or not he really did repent, Okay, because here's the thing, crying is not necessarily evidence of repentance. Now, anybody here ever had like a, a moment of repentance like that, where it's like, you know, you, you were really sorry and you cried and, and you just like, you opened your heart before the Lord and you were really sad. Ever had that? I've had that the day of my salvation. I did that. Okay, but I've also had people that I know, you know, people that I've been in contact with where they made it a, a, a daily habit of coming and they would fall on their knees and they would weep and say they were sorry. And then that very same day, they'd go out and sin against God. And then they'd come home and they'd weep and they'd say they're sorry and then they'd turn on some porn. And then they'd weep and say they're sorry and go to bed. And then they'd wake up in the morning and weep and say they're sorry and start their day. And then they'd weep and say they're sorry and then they'd do it again. And that was their regular habit. Now, now is that remorse? Is that repentance? Is that what repentance looks like? And the answer is clearly no. See, crying isn't necessarily evidence of repentance. And so sometimes like when we have a worship service and, and maybe there's a person you know, in the congregation that you brought and you're like, praying, it's like, oh Lord, will this be the day? Will this be the day? And all of a sudden the, the worship music is playing and, and it's going and it's like really intense and you see them crying. And then like in your heart, you can go like, oh, God's getting them, God's getting them. Well, God is certainly doing a work, but it doesn't necessarily, just because they have tears doesn't mean that they are giving their heart to Jesus. It doesn't mean that they have repented of the things that are keeping them from God. You say, hey, I grew up in church and, you know, it was a sure sign when somebody cried that means they got saved, right? Right? Anybody ever been a part of church like that? Right? I, I have some old Baptist friends that, that that was kind of the sign. This is the sign of salvation that somebody cried you know, at an altar call. Okay, and, and that's not necessarily so because um, we actually have scriptural evidence of this very same thing. You guys remember King Saul, Old Testament? What about Pharaoh? Remember him? Okay, here's two guys, two guys who um, had many things against them. They, they, they did many sins, and yet um, each of them felt bad at times. And each of them were sorry, and, um, but were they ever repentful? Well, we'll see. Well, you know, Saul felt bad, right? You know, uh, Samuel said, hey, wait for me. I'll come up and sacrifice before, the, before we go to war. 
And Saul's like, he got impatient. The people were getting impatient. Where's Samuel? Where's Samuel? Where's Samuel? So what did he do? He sacrificed instead. He couldn't sacrifice. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. He wasn't allowed to do that. But he sacrificed anyway. And then Samuel came up and he's like, what have you done? He's like, well, uh. And he's like, yo, (laughs) dude, whatever. And then, yo, Samuel's getting ready to leave. And Saul grabs his, his, uh, his, um, the train of his robe and it rips. And he goes, in the same way, the kingdom has been torn from you. And then he's like, no, 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 no. Oh, praise God. Praise the Lord. Hey, just come with me. Do the feast. I need everybody to think that you're still on my side. Please, 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 please. And so in one sense, he was remorseful that what he did was wrong, but did he actually repent? No, he, he kept um, doing a lot of things later. He went on to uh, murder the priests of the Lord. Right. And, uh, you know, he, he was sorry many times. I remember he was chasing David and trying to kill David, throwing spears at him and such, chasing his army after him. And, and he did all those things. And then David would do little things like sparing his life. And then Saul would cry and say, oh, my son, David, you were you were more righteous than I. And he would be all upset. And then he, and then he would leave. But then he'd come back again and try to kill David again. So again, he didn't repent. Pharaoh many times said, hey, you know what? Yes, if you stop the plague, then, then I'll let your people go. I'm sorry, I've sinned against God. I, I admit it. Yes, yes, please, just, just you know, intercede for me. You know, have God stop this horrible plague. And then Moses would pray, then he'd say, I ain't letting you go. Was that repentance? No, it wasn't. And so then we come to Judas. Is his remorse evidence of repentance or is it conviction only? See, we, we know how Judas got to the place where he is. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9 and 10 actually gives a very good uh, picture of Judas's heart. Uh, it says, if you're taking notes, write it down. If, you've got, if you can flip fast, go there. But it says, but those who desire to be rich, remember Judas, what was his downfall? He was the keeper of the money and he was stealing from it right? Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Doesn't that, doesn't that exemplify what we are seeing right now in Judas? Yes. When you do things that are wrong, when you do things that are wicked, even before, you guys remember before you gave your heart to Jesus, do you ever feel bad for doing things wrong? I did all the time. I had a guilty conscience. Right, you know, I would do something, it would be wrong, and I would get upset, and and I'd be sorry, but did it stop me from doing those wrong things? No, of course not, I kept doing them, right? And so, you know, we have to look at this, and and we have to understand, it's like, okay, was this remorse of Judas, I don't doubt that he was sorry, but is this repentance? Well, we're going to, let's keep looking at it. So, so he brings back the 30 pieces of silver. Well, that's a positive thing, right? He doesn't keep the silver, right? He, he takes it back to the chief priests and the elders, and he says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Okay, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. That's a positive thing, isn't it? Right, he's confessing that what he did was wrong. But now, let me ask you this question. Was he confessing it to the right people? Think about that for a second. Was he confessing his sin to the appropriate people? Right, because now I've actually known people. I I won't say their names or anything like that, but I have known people who have done, and one person in particular who did just a horrible thing, a horrible thing. And this person then didn't go to to the people that they offended. They came to me. 
and said, oh, and, and they confessed their sin to me. And then they felt better. Right? They felt better. And then I encouraged them, hey, you need to go talk to those people and tell them what you did. And they're like, nah, I'm good. I feel better now. My conscience is clean. I've shared it with somebody. I've got it off my chest. Did they really repent? And I'll tell you, no, they didn't. Absolutely not. And here you have Judas. Did he go to Jesus? Jesus was the one whom he betrayed. Jesus was the one that he kissed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Did he go to Jesus and confess his sin and fall before him and say, Lord, I am sorry, forgive me a sinner. Is that what Judas did? No. Who did he go to? The accomplices, the ones who are carrying out the murder. Okay. Well, confessing our sin to fellow accomplices is not repentance, right? It's just, oh, my, my conscience is struck. See, it was Jesus he betrayed, and it was Jesus whom he needed to seek out and beg forgiveness. And he had no excuse. And you think, well, wait a second. Isn't Jesus, like, being crucified right now? Yes. And we see Peter and John in the, courthouse of, uh, in the courtyard of Caiaphas. They found a way, didn't they? Judas could have come right along with John and gotten in with Peter. He could have. He could have shouted out, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm sorry. But he didn't. Later, we'll see um, John and some of the ladies uh, standing at the foot of the cross in ears distance, you know, of Jesus. And there they were. Was Judas there? No. So see, he has no excuse. He had the opportunity. He could have gone. He could have repented before Jesus. He could have confessed it to the Lord, but he didn't. He confessed it to his accomplices, and that's it. He was, he was trying to clear his conscience. His conscience was bothering him. He was remorseful. He came down. He even threw the 30 pieces of silver down, but he never made it right. right? He never went to Jesus and said, Lord, forgive me. Right? Lord, forgive me. He had the opportunity to confess, but he did not. And it, you know, it could be that his shame kept him from approaching Jesus, right? You guys ever done anything that you were ashamed of? I have. It's why I can't forget my past, but I wish I could. It's why I wake up in the morning and thank God that that man is dead, right? Because there are a lot of things in my past that I am completely and horribly ashamed of, right? And it may have been that his shame kept him from approaching the cross of Jesus Christ. But you know what? This is only an excuse, right? This is only an excuse. He murdered a man, And you go, oh, well, he wasn't the one. If you're an accomplice to murder, guess what? You get the same charge. Right? He murdered a man. Right? He not only murdered a man, but he murdered the Son of God. And he has the responsibility of confessing to him, to his face. And as hard as it may be, as as much shame as you may feel, if you have done something, if you have betrayed the trust of a person, or if you have betrayed the trust of God, guess what? It is your responsibility to just, hey, swallow your humble pie and go and make it right. And go and say, I am sorry. Every single one of us need to understand this. This is part of repentance, right? Because if it's just like, oh, you know what? if say you sin against God and you, and you go to a friend and say, you know what? I did this thing. I'm so, uh, it's yeah, I'm just, I'm really bummed that I did it, but you never actually go before God and say, Lord, please forgive me. I have sinned against you. Then is it really repentance? 
Have you really changed your mind? And is, has that change of mind really changed your direction? Not really, because you don't want to face the one who you have sinned against. We have a responsibility to repent. Right? It, it, it is something that we need to understand as believers because you know, we don't want to share a cheap gospel with people who are outside these walls, do we? Right? We don't want to say, oh, Jesus, he loves you. He loves you so much and he'll accept you just as you are. And he'll let you stay just like that. And you just keep in your sin. You just keep on doing it. It's all good. He loves you anyway. Is that the gospel? Is that the truth? No, it's not. Jesus began his ministry by saying, repent. Those are the, that was the first word of his ministry. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's Jesus, not John the Baptist. John the Baptist also preached that same message. But Jesus' first word of his ministry was repent. So it's important that we understand this word, that we can be able to share it with others. But now we have a question. A question kind of looming over Judas Iscariot. Did he commit the unpardonable sin? Do you know that there is sin that is impardonable? You cannot be forgiven after you have committed the sin. It's called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the one who brought it up, right? The unpardonable sin. And at that time when he was talking about it, he was talking to the Pharisees. He was giving them warning. You guys are approaching a line in the sand. And when you cross that line in the sand, there will be no opportunity for repentance, right? We need to, we need to take this serious, you know, did, did Judas do this? You know, was there a possibility for Judas to repent and find forgiveness? Or was his willful betrayal of Jesus, whom he knew was the Son of God, equivalent to the taking the mark of the beast in Revelation? Right? You see in Revelation, right? It says that, it says, if you've taken the mark of the beast on your head or on your hand, right hand, um, he says, then you can't be saved. You will have your part in the lake of fire, period. Right? So there's no opportunity around it. When you cross that line, it's done. Okay, is what Judas did here equivalent to that? Well, when we talk about repentance, the Bible's not silent on this unpardonable thing, sin thing, so we can't be silent either. But to answer the question, I don't know. I don't know. God's grace is immense and beyond our comprehension, but even God's grace has boundaries. How do I know this is true? It, that, that almost seems like blasphemy, doesn't it? God's grace, God is eternal, God is infinite, he's huge, right? And his love, we, we sing songs like that, his love goes on forever and ever from vanishing point to vanishing point, it's eternal. Yes, but it even has boundaries. And I can say that confidently, scripturally, because if God's grace did not have boundaries, there would have been no flood in Noah's day. And if God's grace had no boundaries, then there would be no great tribulation, so there is a line in the sand. There is a time when God will says that I will not, um, I, I, I will not wrestle with men. I, I will not uh, do this forever. Right? But there will come a time when the, 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 the country, the landscape of God's grace moves into the, the, the country of God's judgment and righteousness. Okay, we need to understand this. And in Matthew 26, verse 24, this is a chapter ago, you know, Jesus said to Judas, the son of man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Wow. Can you imagine if you heard the son of God 
say that about you and then you went on and did the very thing that he told you that it would have been better for you not to have been born? Hmm. It's not given to us to know, though, what would have happened, only what did happen and what will happen when we beg God's mercy. Did Judas beg God's mercy? No. What would have happened if he would have begged forgiveness of Jesus Christ? I don't know. Did he commit the unpardonable sin? I don't know. In the end, I don't know those things. But this is what I do know. The city of Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, the, the, the city that the book of Nahum is speaking against, this death hymn is speaking against this city. But you know what? In the day of, of Jonah, there was no exhortation of God saying, repent, repent for 40 days until destruction. That was not the message of God to the Ninevites. There was no exhortation for repentance. There was no opportunity given by God for them to repent. He simply sent his messenger and said, 40 days and then destruction. 40 days and then destruction. But you know what? (laughs) That king of Nineveh, right? That king of Nineveh, he was a smart man, right? That's why the Bible, that's why Jesus said that we are to be as cunning as serpents and as gentle as doves or as innocent as doves. Why? Because so often the world is more cunning and wiser than we, the church. It shouldn't be so, but unfortunately it is. They have more savvy. And you know what? This guy, he's like, hey, you know what? Here comes this guy, you know, probably bald, like basically acid-stained white. His eyes probably looked all weird. All the coloration in his eyes were out. This guy looked like death. And not only that, but he came out of a great fish. Now, Assyria, one of their chief gods was Dagon, the fish god. Right, so these guys are like, dude, this is living death, walking through our streets saying 40 days until destruction. And you know what he did? He's a Jew. And I have heard that the Jewish God is a merciful God. And though he's saying right now, the commandment that is being declared is at 40 days until destruction. And yet, I have no promise. I have no guarantee that my repentance will do anything. He said, but there's a chance. There's a chance. And so what did the king of Nineveh do? He commanded all of his officials, all of his people, and even all of their animals to be dressed in sackcloth and to throw ashes on their head and to repent from their sins. And you know what happened? God had mercy. Much to Jonah's displeasure, right? He did have mercy, right? They repented. There There was no affirmation that if they repented, God would save them. There was none of that. And Judas, hey, you know what? Did he commit the unpardonable sin? I have no idea. But you know, this would be my counsel. Even if somebody came here this morning having the mark of the beast right square in their forehead where everybody can see it, you know what I would tell them? Repent. Even though I know there is no chance, no possibility for you to go to heaven because you have crossed the line. But nevertheless, God's counsels and his mercy are greater than my knowledge. And you know what? There may be some place in God's word and in his counsels and his knowledge and mercy that would make room even for that. I can't guarantee it. I know that when you take the mark of the beast, you're dead. But you know what? I would still counsel that person to repent. Repent and throw yourself at the mercy of God. Okay, Judas could have repented. Judas should have repented and offered his soul to the grace of God. 
But there's always a chance. There is always a chance. No matter how hard our hearts have become, no matter how many times we have rejected God, called down curses like Peter did, and blasphemed his holy name, if we turn, there may just be hope. And that is a message that we have that we can share with others when we talk about repentance. Because you know what? In the end, are we the judges? Do we get to tell somebody when they've committed the unpardonable sin? No, we know it exists. We know it's there. But do we know where the unpardonable sin is? No, absolutely not. I have no clue. That is between them and the Lord, and that's it. So what do we preach? Repentance. Repentance. Because God is a merciful God. Right? Yes, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, but God is a merciful God. God and he wants to show mercy and so we must throw ourselves at his mercy and we must encourage people who have sinned against him thinking there are many people out there who think oh I'm never going to go to church because I've sinned too much God could never forgive me but you know what in the end we need to tell them that's not true that's not true God loves the sinner it is not his will that any should fall but that all should come to repentance But to simply throw up your hands and say, I'm doomed anyway, so I might as well live like hell for the time I have left. That is utter foolishness. Right? To say, hey, you know what? God said 40 days until destruction. I got 40 days and then I'm going into the lake of fire and that's just it. So, you know what? Forget this whole thing. I'm just going to live like hell. I'm going to pate and do that. You know what? That is foolishness. Because in the end, your life at those last 40 days is just going to confirm the righteous judgment that God is going to do. But if you do turn, there may be a chance. There may be hope. So you know what? Don't do that. And don't encourage anybody to do that. Don't say, hey, dude, you're, you're well beyond saving. You might as well just ha have a good time. Bye. Right? No. And you think, I would never say that. But when you see somebody who is really gruff looking and horrible and ugly, and you just go like, eh, and don't say Jesus loves you to them. Or if you don't share the gospel with them, it's the same thing. You're far beyond salvation. I'm going to walk out. You know, you've got like Satan tattooed across your face and things like that. There's no way you could be saved, right? Don't do that. Everybody has an opportunity for repentance. It is not for us to declare who is able to be saved and who is not. He says, so I've betrayed innocent blood. And then, but notice who he said it to. He said it to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders, and, um, you know, they were absolutely the wrong people uh, to say this to. Um, <laughs> why, would, why would those murderers care if Judas' conscience was bothering him? Right? It, it, it doesn't make any sense to, to go to them uh, to try to ease your conscience. Right? This is literally about the same level as when um, Pope Francis uh, kind of made the, the invitation out to the atheists um, of today saying that they could go to heaven as long as their conscience was clear. Right? Think about this for a second. Number one, it's heresy. But number two, why would they care? They don't believe in God. Right? So what, what, what would be, you know, uh, and honestly, that's not really all that honest. They do believe in God, but more truthfully, they hate God. And they would prefer to be in the torment of hell over being forced to spend eternity with the Lord. But in the end, you know, Judas telling the Pharisees and, and the high priest, oh, I, I've betrayed innocent blood. They're like, so what? You did exactly what we wanted. We wanted to murder him. And not only did we want to murder him, we wanted to make him suffer. 
So you just go home with your little conscience. Okay? This crew cannot and will not offer any absolution or any real comfort for Judah's conscience. Nor will or can the world offer us any hope or answer to our conscience when we sin. Right? This is why, I mean, should we ever look to the world for answers? You know, to, 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 the, to the answer to our, 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 our you know, conscience that, that's grieving us? Right? Can, can a psychologist or a psychiatrist help us in the matter of conscience? You know, can we go to them and say, you know, I have sinned against these people. And what can they really say? What can they really do? What can they really offer? Right? Can Sigmund Freud um, have better answers than the Lord when it comes to conscience? I don't think so. Can Carl Sagan remove our wicked tendencies from humanity? Right? And if you know, I actually looked up a thing on Carl Sagan last night, and it, it, they, I forget what they called it, but it was like the, the most significant statement of Carl Sagan, and basically what he was pleading with all of us of the, of the brotherhood of humanity, he was pleading that all of us lay down our superstition, that's religion if you didn't know that, and to lay down our religion, to, to lay down all of these things, and join together with our intellect and our finances, and reach for the stars, yeah, how can you keep us from blowing ourselves up, Mr. Sagan? You can't. So why should we go to him for answers? Does he have any ability to make us be any better than we are? No, and he can say, you know, reach for the stars, but in the end, you know what? Mr. Sagan, it's like he's a sinner just like the rest of us. Right? He's doing all the same wicked and evil things and selfish things that we do. So why would we look to him for answers? Right? It doesn't make any sense. They can't. Therefore, let us continue to look to the Lord for mercy, forgiveness, justification. Right? Let us come when our conscience is bothering us. Let us go before the Lord. Let's, let's confess it before him. Let's raise our white flags. Right? And surrender to him and say, Lord, I'm sorry. And then let that sorrow in our hearts change the direction so we don't continue in that sin. Amen? For only the blood of Jesus can wash the burdened soul as white as snow. That is a truth that we need to understand and that we need to share with others. So then Judas, what does he do? He throws down his pieces of silver in verse 5 at the temple and he departed and he went and hung himself. And, you know, this is a sad thing and there, there is no joke about this. And it's not funny and we shouldn't make light of this. But killing himself was more desirable than saying he was sorry. Think about it. Why did he kill himself? Because his conscience struck him. But he could not stand before Jesus and say, I'm sorry. And so killing himself. And if you didn't know it, in the Jewish mindset, suicide was the sure ticket to hell. It's not true, but that's what they believed. Right? They believed, the Jews believed, if you committed suicide, you were absolutely going to hell no matter what. Okay? So what did Judas say? Hell is better than saying, I'm sorry. His pride, it seems, wouldn't allow him to suffer the shame and humiliation of admitting his wicked guilt. How sad. How sad. Our next door neighbor committed suicide because she was waiting for um, 
her fiance to propose to her. It wasn't fiance yet, but she wanted him to, and she was pushing him, pushing him, pushing him, pushing him. Finally, she was in such despair. She's a Christian too, by the way. And she was in such despair that she hung herself in the garage across the street from us. He had the wedding ring. He was just waiting for a time when he could ask her without her, come on, come on, because he wanted to have a moment. And she kept forcing, 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 forcing. Isn't it sad? She succumbed to her grief because she wouldn't just allow God to work. He had the ring. He was going to propose to her. He wanted to spend the rest of his life with her. And, you know, I, I, look, at, I look at Judas and just go like, Gosh, what a waste. Behold Judas, one of the twelve. And this is where he ends. And you know, the scriptures get fairly detailed um, about him. And that'll be in a, when we cover another gospel. But um, it is sad. And we should grieve over it because I'm sure the Lord grieved. It says, but the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, it is not lawful to put them in the treasury. And you know, this part... <laughs> If you ever wanted a definition or illustration of hypocrisy, here it is. Ready? They had no problem spending the Lord's tithes and offerings in order to murder the Lord's only begotten son. Think about the irony of that for a second. But now they protest putting that same money back into the offering plate because it was the price of blood. Hypocrisy. They're liars. They were pretending to be gods, but they were not. They were the devils. Notice that they know what they did was wrong, right? They knew what they did was wrong. That's why they couldn't put the money back in the plate. We know this is blood money, so we can't put it in the offering, right? They know what they did was wrong, but they didn't care. They know that they murdered an innocent man and therefore couldn't deposit the money back into the temple treasury, but they had no conscience over the matter whatsoever. There was no remorse and no repentance, only cold, hard hearts of, of, of stone, and they were happy with their religion and the praise of men. And that was enough. Did these men cross that line into the unpardonable sin? I don't know. But I would not want to be in their shoes as they crossed over into eternity. I would be terrified for them. Absolutely terrified. Right? They had no repentance. They had no care. And then we go through, and they, they bought the, the potter's field and all that. And then in verse 9 it says, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took 30 pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. And I want to just pause as we close on that, as the Lord directed me. Now, uh, I've already shared with you guys before that I don't believe that this is a... Because um, a, if you look back in the book of Jeremiah, you will never find this quote. And then other people, commentators say, well, no, it's actually um, Isaiah's book. And at one time, Jeremiah's book and Isaiah's book were like linked together. They have all these different like conjectures of why. you Because know, in Isaiah's book, there's actually something that's similar to this, talking about the 30 pieces of silver and all that kind of stuff. But it's actually, if you read it, it's not this quote either. Okay? I don't believe this is quoting either of those. There is something that, Isaac, that Jeremiah said that we don't have recorded in our scriptures today, I believe. And um, that's what this is. If you say that, oh, no, no, it's Isaiah, then, um, well, then he got it wrong, the writer of the, the Gospel of Matthew. And um, if it's the other way around, it's like either way you have an error in scripture. 
So it's like, you know, the very simple thing is like, you know, this wasn't from either of those sources, and he's quoting something else. The same way that they quote Enoch in Jude. Okay? It's something that they had, that they knew of, that we don't have today. It didn't survive to this day, and the Lord didn't make it part of the canon of Scripture. So, hey, it's something else. Okay? But when it says that, um, as the Lord directed me, this is very comforting to me. Why? Because this was the Lord's plan. Right? This was the Lord's plan. Not that Judas would betray him, although he did know that Judas would betray him. But that Jesus would substitute himself for all of us. That he would be betrayed. That Remember when he said, two days until the Passover, and then I will be crucified. And he stayed. That reckless love of Jesus Christ, this from the beginning was the plan of God. Right? This was the plan of God. So that he could save you and me from eternal separation from God. And guys, when I look at this, I see this great love of Jesus Christ. And I look at every single one of us and you say, hey, you know what? No matter what I've done, no matter what people have told me throughout my life, no matter what I've experienced, no matter what I have felt, all of my value is not in how many people like me on Facebook or Instagram. My value is not in how well I can cook. My value is not in how well I can teach a Bible study. My value is not found in what other people think of me in my high school class reunion. Right? That is not where my value is found. My value, my worth, my beauty is found in the eyes of the one who laid down his life for me. Need I anything else? Do I need anything else? Jesus finds you and he finds me so captivating and beautiful and worthy. And I mean, what is the value of the blood of Jesus Christ, the son of God? It's, there is no number. You can't place all, if you took the whole universe and turned every atom into a diamond, it would be nothing compared to what he gave to purchase you and me. That shows you how much you are worth. And I know in our society, you know, women are told they're ugly and they have to, they have to, oh, you need to do this and be anorexic and do all these things. You have to fit into this mold and all this kind of stuff. No, you don't. You are beautiful for who you are because Jesus made you and he died for you. Men, same thing, right? We don't have to live up to what our culture says. Jesus died and bled for you. So you can have confidence as you stand before him. You are his and you are beautiful. You are his poema. Right? His work. And that is an incredible thing. So let's, you and I, repent from our sins and our failures and rejoice in the most extravagant gift ever given. The gift of God, which was purchased at Calvary. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Lord, we thank you so much, Lord, for your great love. And Lord, we know that, that we need to repent. Lord, we know that we need to change our mind in so many different ways and so many different areas. And Lord, we just pray that, that you would just move in our hearts, Lord. Help us to humble ourselves before you, that we might give ourselves completely to you. Lord, though we can only offer shame in so many times, Lord, in our lives. You gladly take that shame, Lord, and exchange it for glory. And so we thank you. 
It is your holy and precious name that we pray, Jesus. Amen.